in, we're in John chapter 3, which is, again, it's just a full, it's jam-packed, full of things. And I was wondering exactly where to go, because there's so much in there. And I thought I'd better read that context from verses 1 through to 21 of this conversation, if you like, between Jesus and Nicodemus. We've been looking at Nicodemus briefly in the past few weeks about how he came and how it says about the people who were believing upon him because of the miracles they saw. And he, in some senses, came for the same reason. He, he's seen, he said, no one can do these things unless God is with him. And he confessed, you are a teacher sent from God. But this man came at night, perhaps to remain um, outside of the jives and the accusations uh, and the persecutions from his peers. But nevertheless he went, because such was stirred in his heart that he needed to know the truth. And we believe that God himself drew Nicodemus to the Lord Jesus at that time. So in this verse 3 of chapter 3, Jesus responds to Nicodemus' confession that he must be the teacher come from God. Jesus responds to him. And Nicodemus and the others, they knew that he'd come from God because of those signs that he performed, that they believed by what they saw, that nobody could do those things unless they'd come from God. The Pharisees themselves as a whole couldn't deny that he was performing miracles. And yet somehow in the wickedness of their own heart, they pressed and repressed and pushed down the truth of who he was. Peter, remember, on that day of Pentecost, when he stood there delivering that first sermon of the New Testament church, he said this, Jesus of Nazareth, he said to his brethren, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God through miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. So this, this was true. But he had indeed been attested by the signs and wonders that he did. But see here that even though that's the case, Jesus doesn't respond in any way to what Nicodemus said. He didn't even give them, in some senses, the time of day. He didn't kind of acknowledge what Nicodemus had said. What he did was he went straight to the root of why really Nicodemus had come. Jesus said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did acknowledge what he said? Yes, of course, I am a teacher sent from God, and I have been attested by signs and wonders. He didn't mention that. He just said to him, Look, none of that really matters. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So what, what does this term mean? Born again. It's a term that can be greatly ridiculed, greatly laughed at. Oh, have, have you become born again, have you? In order to answer this question, I think that we ought to spend just a couple of minutes thinking about our natural birth. You see, the term born again implies that a birth has already taken place. Hence the word again, born again. 
So there's an implication from Jesus himself that a birth has already taken place. But the fact that he says that one must be born again, we understand then that there must be something amiss with this first natural birth. For you must be born again. Adam and Eve were created perfect. The scripture tells us in Genesis that God looked at his creation and saw that it was good. That includes them. He didn't think, he didn't look at them and say, they're really quite good, and in the main they're good, but there's just that little bit that's a little bit off. No, he said he looked at them and saw that it was good. They were created good and perfect. These two people tended the garden. They ate of the ample fruit which grew there. They walked. They talked in wonderful communion with their creator. He says, doesn't it, that he walked with them in the cool of the day. Hard for us to picture and imagine what that really consisted of. How wonderful that would have been. What kind of relationship and communion they had with God in that state that they were. A state that nobody in this room, in fact nobody since, has known what it would be like to have communion with God in that way. So they walked with him. They had this phenomenal, I've said that three times today, communion with the Lord, this relationship with them. Until the woman was deceived by the crafty, <coughs> subtle serpent into disobeying God by taking and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Adam, her husband, and her head heeded her voice over and above the commands of God. And he, not being deceived, deliberately chose to eat of the fruit. <clears throat> Thus then, sin entered the world. Thistles and weeds grew. Adam and Eve like the world ever since. Think about that. What did they do? They hid from God out of fear of their nakedness. And the world has done the same thing ever since. They've been hiding and hiding away from God from that day. Ever since that day they've been hiding from God, trying to hide from God, who we know, don't we? As it says in Psalm 139, that we can't escape God. No matter where we go, even the depths of the sea. We could be sitting on the ice planet Pluto and not be out of his presence. But who was it to put Pluto there? It was God himself. We can't escape him. So sin had entered the heart of man and that glorious covering of God was lost. And so to cover their nakedness, our first parents were given skins or tunics made of skins which also foretells that great sacrifice to come in order for God to forgive sin and to clothe his people with righteousness. They were thus then cast out of Eden and the work of tilling and bringing forth crops from the ground became hard work for Adam. 
And Eve would bear the fruit of children in tremendous pain. There was, at this point, no turning back. God had promised them that if they had obeyed his command, they would have lived. But if not, they would die. The covenant of works. Do this and live. Don't do this and die. And die they did. These two people who... I, I read and I wonder and I think, did they really understand what death was? That they died. They died physically and they died spiritually. And not only did they bring that on themselves, but as the federal head of all mankind, they brought it to all their posterity. Which, dear friends, Include you and me. When Adam and Eve fell from grace, when they sinned, brought us all into sin. There has been an age-old argument as to the fairness of that. But who's going to argue with the Creator of heaven and earth? Who are you, O man? And David cried out, didn't he? Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? I was born in sin. You and I were born in sin. We came into this world already sinful in our nature. We might not yet have actually sinned in a kind of a, a choice or a physical way ourselves. But we inherently had that sin within us. Original sin. It's often known as. And it says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. That's what it tells us. Through one man, through Adam, death came through sin to all men, and because of that, all sinned. That is the situation that we were found in. So, again, from that moment to this, all people are born in sin, born spiritually dead. Aliens toward God. Haters, even, of all that is called holy and good. That's our natural state. Mankind are at war with God. Look outside your window, look at the news, look at the papers and see. If, it, if we've got anything about us, we can see, can't we, that the world is at war with God. Even the small things that we might see, seem as the small print over there, all the Bibles taken out of hospitals, out of schools. When I was at school, we'd sing in assembly, we'd actually have hymn books, we'd, the, the, the teacher would say a prayer. I don't even know if they have assemblies anymore. But I do know that they don't do anything like that. Why? Well, we'll offend the Muslims, won't we? We'll offend the Sikhs. But really, the deep root is this. We hate God. That's the truth of it. We're God-haters. We're at war with God. We're unrighteous, unholy blasphemers, with hearts of stone, seat 
in wickedness. As God says, in the time before the flood, which destroyed everything on earth apart from eight chosen people. There was a number of people on the earth at that time, into the millions, and I've read. I don't think anybody can really know for sure exactly how many. But there was a lot of people, even at that time. Yeah. And only eight people were saved. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was the desperate situation. That every heart was continually bent upon wickedness. Let me say this to you, friends. There's no difference today. Yeah, None whatsoever. Even after the flood, you see Noah settled down. He started to multiply on the earth again. And how quick was it? How soon was it that they started again to go their own way? Almost immediately. Even Noah himself made himself or grew himself a vineyard and decided to get drunk on his wine. And then his son uncovers his nakedness and causes him humiliation and embarrassment. And so he's cursed. So on and so on. Sin fills the earth. Why? Because it's deep in the heart of man. Our natural birth, says Barnes, introduces us to light. It is the commencement of life and throws us amidst the works of God and is the beginning of our existence. But it also introduces us to a world of sin. We early go astray. All men transgress. The imagination of the thoughts of the heart is evil from the youth up. We are conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. And there is none that doeth good. No, not one. The carnal mind is enmity against God. And by nature we are dead in trespasses and sin. So then Jesus states this phrase to Nicodemus. And when he does, when he says, you must be born again, look, whatever you've just said, whatever, whatever reason you came, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But Jesus, as he states this, he must have seen the confusion on Nicodemus' face. As he says this, how can a man be born again when he is old. How can he, or, or can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can that be possible? This teacher of Israel, as Jesus called him, would have known such texts as Ezekiel 36, 24 through 26. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols I will give you a new heart put a new spirit within you I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh 
Nicodemus would have known that scripture without a shadow of a doubt. But he couldn't understand that both what Jesus was saying and what Ezekiel had said all those years ago were one and the same. This text in Ezekiel is about the new birth. And Nicodemus should have known it. This great teacher of Israel who was teaching people but he had no idea about the true things of God. See, to be born again, it means to be born from above. That's what it means. To be born from above. This is not another natural way to be born like Nicodemus initially thought. How, how can I enter into my mother's womb again? And it's almost like some kind of reincarnation and we, we get another chance at life. Is that what you're saying, Jesus, that we, we enter into the mother's womb again and, we, and, we, and we're born and we get another chance of being good in life and, and living properly? And it's not what he's saying at all. <coughs> it means that we must be born from above. This is a spiritual birth. A spiritual birth from death to life. And this word itself means to be born from a higher place. From actually the source itself. See, for a, for a person to be born again is a work of God, a work of grace, proceeding from God to man. Remember when Christ gave up his spirit and he died? The curtain. In the temple was torn from where? Top to bottom. This veil that kept us from the presence of God, that only the priest could enter but once a year. This ability to go before God. You know, as we prayed earlier, I said that we were coming before God boldly, as the scripture says, we enter boldly before the presence of God through Christ. It has to be through Christ. There's no way through that curtain, no way through the thick veil, but through Christ. And when he died, it split, entering, opening the way for us to enter from top to bottom, from God to man, from heaven to earth. This is a work of God. To be born again is a work of God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said a person must be born again. Must be. It's not a take you to leave it job. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you want to see it. You must be born again. Must be. Absolute necessity. To be born again. In order to enter the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul outlines the stages of the new birth in Romans chapter 8, 29 through 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Just take that in for a second. That's what God is doing with you. 
That's what the process of sanctification is. If you're born again, if you know Christ this morning, you are in a process of sanctification which will last from now until you see him face to face. And he is conforming you to his image. And on that day, it says, doesn't it, in the scriptures, when we see him, we shall be like him. Until then, we're on a journey of the process. Flawed and sinful, but going from one degree of glory to another. From faith to faith. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Just as a note here. All these things that it reads there, like one after the other, predestined, called, justified, glorified. All these things, when we look at the Ordo Salutis, or the Order of Salvation, there's people that have a few different opinions of how this actually works. God has to regenerate us. But this work is a, it's a work that happens all at once. So let's begin with the foreknowledge of God, only very briefly. We won't spend too much time here, but this is far more than God simply looking ahead down the annals of time to see something before it happens. This word, as A.W. Pink says, is never used in scripture in connection with events or actions. Instead, it's always with reference to persons, to people. The word foreknowledge is always about people, not about, uh, I see this thing happening, or that's going to happen in the future, but it's always in reference to people. It is people that God is said to foreknow, not the actions of those people. God foreloved his people. You know in scripture it says Adam knew his wife. That means that they came together as man and wife intimately. He loved her. That's what it's saying. God foreloved, foreknew his people. The Lord knows friends who are his. Tells us that in 2 Timothy 2 19. It also references it in Psalm 1. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He goes on to state this. Scripture affirms that God in his high sovereignty singled out certain ones to be recipients or partakers of his distinguishing favours. And therefore he determined to bestow upon them the gift of faith. False theology makes God's foreknowledge of our believing the cause of of his election to salvation, whereas God's election is the cause, and our believing is the effect. We believe because he elected us. He gives us the gift of faith because he is determined beforehand to follow us. He goes on to say, he also predestined the subject of predestination must be dealt with care and be given much attention 
and is a subject that needs more time than we can give here this morning. But in summary, just a brief summary, predestination means that our final destination, whether heaven or hell, is decided by the Godhead before we're even born. It means that our destiny is completely in the hands of God. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got everybody here in his hands. He's got my brother and my sister in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And this is what he's saying. That our destiny... Some people might say, well, that's, surely that's unfair. I am happy that my destiny is in the hands of God. Because if it were in mine, I'm a goner. Yeah. We talk about losing our salvation. If I could lose it, I'd have lost it this morning. Before I even came to church. Yeah. He has our destiny in his hands. He goes on then to say, whom he predestined... These he also called. The effectual call of God is an inward call. So he says, many are called, few are chosen. But the call of the gospel, again, I think Frank alluded to this in the brief comment that he made before we sang. That the, the gospel is preached, the call is to all. But the effectual call is to those who he has chosen. Sometimes this is referred to as irresistible grace. The Holy Spirit powerfully works upon the soul. A quickening or regeneration. Which brings change within. Turning that disposition, that inclination. Which was only once bent towards sin and rejection of God. Toward himself with new godly desires. That's what it means. So then we go on, it says, those who we call, he also justified. The effectual call so changes our disposition, so irresistibly draws us to God. That by faith, which is also a gift of God, can we respond in faith? He regenerates us and he gives us the gift of faith to respond. We repent of our sin, we put our trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, who cleanses us from all of the sin, and he puts us in right standing before God. We're justified. That is, we stand before God and we're pronounced not guilty. Believing and accepting this by faith, with the knowledge that it is by the grace of God by which we're saved. You can read about these things in Ephesians, which is actually what I read this morning. Uh, the bit previous to that in chapter 2 talks about the fact that we're born again. We're saved by the grace of God through faith. Not by our own works, but because it's the gift of God. We have no way of stirring up and churning up and deciding to save ourselves. If you have a desire for God this morning, it's because he's given it to you. And if you don't, then you remain dead in trespasses and sin. In John chapter 1, we've already looked at this very briefly, but in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says, but as many as received him, 
as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, there is this receiving. God so turns our hearts. People like to argue against irresistible grace and say, well, he's forcing you to love him. No, he's not. He's turning your will. So working upon your will that you look at him and all you want is him. He doesn't drag you kicking and screaming to himself. He just changes your inclination. Gives you the desire that you never would have had had he not given it. And so you look upon him and all you want is your heart is crying out and you look to him and you cry in faith, Oh Lord, save me a sinner. Is there mercy for me? And you receive his gift. You receive his grace. As many as received him, he said. Receiving him is a gift of God. Repentance is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. It's all a gift of God. But he causes and turns your heart and your will to lay yourself out before him and say, Oh Lord, I confess. Yeah. I'm a sinner. Like the publican, the Pharisee. With his head down, head lowered, he said, Oh Lord, I can't even lift my head up to you. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. We realise what we are, but then he floods our souls with joy. And he says about the publican, doesn't it? He went away justified. And the Pharisee was self-righteous. Oh, I'm so thankful, Lord, that I'm not like this man. You know, we can be self-righteous, can't we, sometimes? Oh, Lord, I'm so, I'm so glad I'm not like the shoplifter out there. And I am glad I'm not like that. I am. Does that make me better than him? No. In my own flesh? He might have less going on within himself than I have. And I should know better. Because I confess and profess to know God. So my sin in that sense is worse. We have to be very careful. We don't live in judgment. I want to read to you a comment from... R.C. Sproul. But first let me say this regarding salvation. We have this opinion the world has. It'll be okay. You know, God's a loving God, isn't he? He created us for his creation and he loves us. <clears throat> but look at the cross. If God didn't spare his own son... And pouring out his wrath upon his beloved son, who was innocent, who took upon himself our sin. If he didn't spare his own son from that wrath, what makes you think he's going to spare you yeah. if you reject him? Yeah. He is a loving God. How do we know this? Because he gave. His only begotten Son, that whoever believes upon Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. All you need to do is believe, not work. We work for God, in a sense, because we believe. 
not to be justified. I don't, I'm no, no more saved because I stand here and preach than if I didn't. I could never stand here and preach again and it wouldn't make me any less saved or any more saved. All what we do for God, the works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in, are because we love him. Not to cause him to save us. So R.C. Sproul says this. It was Jesus who first declared that spiritual rebirth was an absolute necessity for entering the kingdom of God. He declared to Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The word unless in Jesus' teaching signals a universally necessary condition for seeing and entering the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Rebirth, then, is an essential part of Christianity. Without it, entrance into God's kingdom is impossible. Regeneration is the theological term used to describe rebirth. It refers to a new generating, a new genesis. That's what it means, genesis, a beginning. A new beginning. It's more than just turning over a new leaf. It marks the beginning of a new life in a radically renewed person. Peter speaks of believers having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit upon those who are spiritually dead. You can see Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, which I mentioned earlier. So the Spirit recreates the human heart, quickening it from spiritual death to spiritual life. Regenerate people, as the Bible tells us, are new creations. Where formerly they had no disposition, no inclination or desire for the things of God. Now they are disposed and inclined toward God. In regeneration, God plants a desire for himself in the human heart that otherwise would not be there. Regeneration is not to be confused with the full experience of conversion. Just as birth is our initiation, our first entrance into life outside the womb, so our spiritual rebirth is the starting point of our spiritual life. It occurs by God's divine initiative and is an act that is sovereign, immediate and instantaneous. An awareness of our conversion may be gradual. That's an interesting piece of writing there. And I believe that to be absolutely true. It is in my case. There's some people, there are probably people amongst you here today that can say, such and such a day, such and such a time, God radically converted me. I can't say that. As I look at my life and where I've come from and I see a gradual process. Yeah. I can say that there were times, particular times, where something had occurred and I look back now and I see the hand of God upon it and I can say, God was at work there. And then he let the rope out there and I went off there. And then, I, then it was that just bit like this. Yeah. So an awareness of it may be gradual. Yet rebirth itself is instantaneous. No one can be partially reborn any more than a woman can be partially pregnant. Yeah. 
Regeneration is also not the fruit or the result of faith. I mentioned this earlier. Rather, regeneration proceeds from faith. Oh, sorry, precedes faith. It comes before faith. Regeneration comes before faith as the necessary condition for faith. We can't have faith unless we've been regenerated by God. If we've been regenerated by God, he gives us faith. We also do not in any way dispose ourselves toward regeneration or cooperate as co-workers with the Holy Spirit to bring it to pass. We do not decide or choose to be regenerated. God chooses to regenerate us before we ever will choose to embrace him. To be sure, after we have been regenerated by the sovereign grace of God, we do choose, we do act, we do cooperate and believe in Christ. God does not have faith for us. It is our own faith by which we are justified. What God does is quicken us to spiritual life, rescuing us from darkness, bondage and spiritual death. Nicodemus, you see, he accepted and he confessed that Jesus was a teacher who came from God. But Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Muslims believe that Jesus is a mighty prophet of God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that God procured salvation for us through him. But none of them believe that he is actually God. See, we can believe that Jesus is a godly man. We can believe he's a wise teacher. We can believe that he is one of a kind when it comes to how he treated his fellow man. We can even confess with Nicodemus that we believe that this man came from God because of the signs he did. But unless we're born again, this is what Jesus says, you can believe all that. How many of them looked at the signs and wonders of God and yet didn't believe in the end? You can believe all that stuff. You can look and you can be amazed. But he says this, look, this is the root. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, unless you've been regenerated, unless you've become a new creature in Christ, receiving the heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, we cannot see, we will not want to see, nor can we ever enter the kingdom of God. Let me read those verses again, finally, in John 3, 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. What do I need to do to be saved? I need to repeat a prayer. Don't need to walk up a big flight of stairs on my knees like Luther tried to do. Don't need to wear a hair shirt to punish myself for all my sin. Just need to believe. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
confess from your heart and your mouth that he is the Lord. And you'll repent and turn away from the life you've lived. You won't want to live it any longer. God is so working upon your heart this morning. You won't want to live in that sin you once loved. You might battle through it. You might fight. You might have the flesh. You might have the temptation. But you won't desire it. You won't be under the dominion of it. Because God so loved the world that he gave. That whosoever believes. Are you a whosoever this morning? Do you believe this morning? Then you're not going to perish. For that everlasting life. But if you don't believe. You have everlasting death. Everlasting torment. He goes on to say, God didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. That is a scary thought. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're condemned already. Why? Because you've not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And the reason is this, for the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men have loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. That's the condemnation, rejection. So the plea this morning, the command, you must be born again. The plea, believe and be saved. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. <coughs> Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful chapter in which we see Nicodemus, who I do believe, as the scripture says, did come to faith in you. Thank you, Lord God, for the new birth. Thank you, Lord, that it is a whole work comes from you. Thank goodness it's not in my hands or the hands of my friends here. Horrific was, Lord, we would just mess it all up. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust that when we believe upon Christ for our salvation, we are saved. We are born again and we have eternal life. Everlasting life, as the word tells us. Thank you, Lord, that it's not us that has to keep it. The Lord, that we're kept by you, the perseverance of the saints, Lord, that you, by your power, cause your saints to persevere through the darknesses of temptation, the wickedness of the world, the pride of life, and the sin of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. Lord, we will battle these things until the day comes where we leave our bodies and we enter into... The glorious heaven is where when we see you, we will be like you. And then it will all be diminished, all gone. No more sin, no more death. Just the purity of living with you. Until then, Lord, we pray. Help us to live a sanctifying, godly life by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I do pray this morning, if there's anybody here that isn't born again, Lord, that you would cause them as we've read, as we've looked at this morning, by your power. Lord, will you regenerate them? 
Will you give them a new heart? Will you take out the heart of stone? And will you give them the heart of flesh? We pray that, Lord God, for anybody here this morning and for those of our families who we may be praying for. Have mercy upon them, we pray. Glorify your name amongst us, Lord, in the salvation of souls. Lord, in Jesus' name, we humbly ask and pray. Amen. 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 Amen.